The power of the speaker is awesome. Awesome. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is the most powerful woman in American political history, leading a fractious Democratic Party. AOC and her group on one side. That's like five people. The progressive group. Well, the progressive, I'm a progressive. And she's not afraid to stand up to President Trump. Please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting. They just have to know. You throw a punch, you better take a punch. I warned you, Northerners don't watch trust outsiders. Game of Thrones begins its final season on HBO tonight. And what you're watching is a first look at the very first scene. You don't have to be a fan to appreciate the acting and fantastical plot lines. Tonight, go behind the scenes on one of the most expensive and epic TV shows ever. As the NBA playoffs tip off, this might be the overriding question in basketball. Will the best team in a generation, led by Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, and Klay Thompson, be able to triumph over not just the opposition, but over forces like ego, money, and fatigue? It's inevitable there's going to be some friction sometimes. How do you guys handle conflict? Looking at me. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 World's Most Ethical Companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. Nancy Pelosi is the most powerful woman in American political history. She's been Speaker of the House not once, but twice. And President George W. Bush's nickname for her was Three because of her place in line for the presidency. Under her leadership last year, the Democrats won back control of the House. The San Francisco liberal is now the voice of her party and chief critic of President Trump. She's also keeping close tabs on at least six House committees investigating the president. And she's pressing for release of the full, unredacted Mueller report. The Mueller report is about an attack on our elections by a foreign government. And we want to know about that. We want to know about that in terms of being able to prevent it from happening again. So it's bigger even uh, than Donald Trump. She says she doesn't trust Attorney General William Barr. Do you think that the Attorney General is covering anything up? I have no idea. I have no idea. He may be whitewashing, but I don't know if he's covering anything up. It's no use having that discussion. 
All we need to do is see the Mueller report. And asking for the president's tax returns? It should not have taken this long for the president. He said he was under audit. When I was in a, I was going to a Martin Luther King breakfast in San Francisco, and one of the waiters there said to me, oh, Madam Speaker, when the president says the Mueller report's going on too long, just tell him not as long as your audit. <laughs> Everybody has released their returns, and we will have the legislation to say that everyone should, must, but for the moment, he's been, hi- so what's he hiding? She just hit her 100th day as speaker. She recently called the president to ask for a meeting on infrastructure. But there's no sign that the gridlock that has plagued Congress for years is easing. One of the complaints we've heard is that you don't reach across the aisle. Because it seems like right now nothing is getting done. You pass things, whatever it is, dies in the Senate. We haven't died. No, we were together 100 days. The fact that we even passed them in the House is a victory. Let's figure out the places, figure out where we can find common ground. There's always been bipartisan support for DREAMers, bipartisan support for gun safety, bipartisan support for infrastructure. But why doesn't anything get done? Well, I mean, we just started. We just started. We're three months since we were in, in office. But you're talking about 100 days. This president's been in office for two years plus. And we've been here three months. Hey, may I introduce you the idea of the power of the speaker is to set the agenda. We didn't have a speaker who would bring a gun bill to the floor. We didn't have a speaker who would bring a dreamer's issue to the floor. We do now. And that's a very big difference. The power of the speaker is awesome. Awesome. We feel successful in what we have done. But her becoming speaker was in doubt last December when a group in her caucus agitated for a change to someone younger. It was the president of all people who rescued her in that now famous Oval Office meeting. You know, Nancy's in a situation where it's not easy for her to talk right now. And that did not sit well with her. Mr. President, please don't characterize the strength that I bring to this meeting as the leader of the House Democrats who just won a big victory. Right after the meeting, she walked to the mics in her orange coat with a whole new image, her ascendance to the speakership no longer in jeopardy. Good afternoon. You seem to be one of the very, very few people who have stood up to him yeah. and well, won. No, people do. People do. It, it is uh, Maybe not so much in public the way this was televised. Well, that was his problem. In other words, I tried to say, let's not have this conversation in the public domain because you're saying things that we have to contradict because they're not true. And he said, oh, I want the public to see. Well, you want them to see that you don't know what you're talking about? Really? Here's what you've said. You've said, if someone's ripping your face off, you rip their face off. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. And that's what it was like. <laughs> now, you know, you have this... Um, yeah, I, I, I probably said that, you know. They just have to know. You throw a punch, you better take a punch. From a grandmother. Yeah. (laughs) Then at the State of the Union, she did her mocking clap, and it went viral. Now, if you go to her own campaign website, you'll see she's touting herself as the patron saint of shade. And this is your new branding of Nancy Pelosi. Kind of like a giant slayer almost, or... When I think muscular, that, no, I think that um, I happen to be a manifestation of the women power that is coming forth now, but only one manifestation.
Today, she's a more self-assured Nancy Pelosi, more willing to promote herself. And I think I'm the best person to go forward. She told us that our democratic values are being threatened and says unabashedly that she is the right person to stand up for them. As our founders said, when they declared independence and established a new nation, the times have found us. The times found Lincoln. Not to be presumptuous to put ourselves in those categories, but the times have found us. Not because we're so great, but because of the urgency of the situation that our country faces because of the situation in the White House. Do you solemnly swear? In January, she swore in the 116th Congress that includes 43 new Democrats from Republican districts who are called the moderates, plus the most diverse caucus in history, with unprecedented numbers of people of color and a record 91 women. She's given high marks even among Republicans we spoke to. So help you God. For her skills as a legislator and effective negotiator. We spoke to a group of Democratic Congresswomen, veterans, and freshmen to ask how she wields her power. She constantly is weaving, weaving people together. I like the way that the president can't figure out how to deal with her. Because she has the experience. It's not easy to get through through the legislative process in Congress. As the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, I feel like she doesn't try to shut something down before it needs to be shut down. How many of you are going to be willing to tell me how afraid you are of her? She's the first person in my life that has scared the heck out of me. (laughs) I'm, I'm honestly... But I have so much respect for her... And it's this combination of courage and grace. But why were you afraid of her? Trust me, you don't want to cross her. (laughs) That's what I heard. There were times early on where we had to take difficult votes. (laughs) I'm kind of embarrassed. We would run to the ladies' room after the vote. (laughs) You'd run and hide. Yeah. Some of them told us that they're afraid of you. Oh, no, they're not. And if they vote against you, if they don't toe the line that they run out the back oh, they do that, yeah. and they hide in phone booths. <laughs> but the men do that, too. That's not just the women. But she does get pushback, for instance, from 29-year-old Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, who has proposed some out-of-the-mainstream measures. So you are contending with a group in Congress. Over here on the left flank are these self-described socialists. On the right, these moderates, and you yourself said that you're the only one who can unify everybody. And the question is, can you? By and large, uh, whatever orientation they came to Congress with, they know that we have to hold the center, that we have to go down the mainstream. They know that? They do. But it doesn't look like that. It looks as if it's fractured. She likes to minimize the conflicts within her caucus between the moderates and the progressives. You have these wings, AOC and her group on one side. That's like five people. No, it's the progressive group. It's more than five. I'm a progressive, yeah. Well, as I understand it, the progressives want radical change. They want to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with Medicare for all. I was under the impression that you had said 
that you do not favor Medicare for all, that uh, ACA, Obamacare, is better. Well, the Affordable Care Act is better than Medicare. There's no question about that. The Affordable Care Act benefits are better. Medicare doesn't have a catastrophic plan. So if you want Medicare for all, you're going to have to change Medicare. And let's take a look at that. Well, Medicare for all, it's not only being pushed by some members of your caucus, but also some of the presidential candidates. And it is allowing the president to say you're all socialists. Do you know that when we did when Medicare was done by the Congress at the time, under Lyndon Johnson, Ronald Reagan said Medicare will lead us to a uh, socialist dictatorship. This is an ongoing theme of the Republicans. However, I do reject socialism as a economic system. If people have that view, that's their view. That is not the view of the Democratic Party. Speaker Pelosi is now the most public face of the Democratic Party its most successful fundraiser, and the agenda setter. We're Democrats for, we are for the people. She works tirelessly, always on the move in three-inch heels at 79. I like that, that one's a corgi. Even when she takes time to visit one of her nine grandchildren, as she did recently with Bella and her mother, Christine, Nancy's second, it's brief. This weekend, I came from Washington to San Francisco. On Sunday, I'll be in Los Angeles. Monday, St. Louis. And then Chicago. And then New York. And then Boston. And then Florida. And then back to California. And then back to Washington. That's one week? Yeah. Yes, that's one week. It's a lot of peanuts and pretzels on the plane. It's not exactly an accident that Nancy Pelosi became speaker, given how she grew up. Politics was the family business. Her father, Thomas D'Alessandro, was a congressman from Baltimore, and then the mayor. I was born into a family that was devoutly Catholic, deeply patriotic, and staunchly democratic. She got married right out of college to Paul Pelosi, an investment banker, and had five children in six years. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. At age 46, she was drafted to run for Congress and won in 1987 when there were only 23 women in the House. Do you solemnly swear that... When there were only 23, did any of the big bulls, the men, it was a men's club, obviously, encourage you? to run for leadership, to lift your head up? You have to understand, when they're only 23, men are not threatened by the women in Congress. You understand? They're not threatened by that. That's that's nice. That's nice. We have some women here. Pat you on the top of your head. When you get to have numbers and you want to be run for leader, then that's a different story. Then they're like, why are they all gathering in the well? They all have the same color on today. What are they up to? (laughs) We also have more women serving in Congress than at any time before. In her prime, at nearly 80, she is deploying everything she's got into keeping the House in Democratic hands, flipping the Senate, and above all, defeating the president. How would you describe President Trump? How would I describe him? I think that he describes himself on a daily basis. I think that there's nobody in the country who knows better that he should not be president of the United States than Donald Trump. You think he knows it himself? I think he does, yeah. But I respect the office he holds. 
and uh, he's not worth the trouble of saying, you're so horrible, we can't work together. No, we need to work together. You have complained, I'm quoting you, President Trump is engaged in an unconstitutional assault on the Constitution. Uh, Right, it has. What do you think the future of our system is, if that's true? Well, I think our future uh, is strong enough, built on a strong foundation to withstand everything, including the current occupant of the White House. I don't think for two terms, though. Game of Thrones has won more Emmy Awards than any other television drama in history. When the eighth and final season begins tonight on HBO, some 30 million Americans are expected to tune in. Tens of millions more will be watching live in nearly 200 countries and territories around the world. The show is based on a series of fantasy novels written by George R.R. Martin. But don't let the dragons and magic fool you. This is no kid show. The characters are complex and the storylines full of graphic violence, sex, and shocking surprises. Whether you're a fan or not, we thought you'd be interested to learn the unlikely story of how Game of Thrones began and how it turned into one of the most popular television series ever made. Game of Thrones is set in the mythical Seven Kingdoms of Westeros, whose ruler historically sits on the Iron Throne. Neil! Feuding families vie for power. I have only loved one woman. (laughs) Manipulation and murder, tools of the trade. Your sister. A giant wall protects the Seven Kingdoms. Winter has come, and with it, the threat of total annihilation from a seemingly unstoppable army of the dead. For you, what is the show about? Power. Power. What it does to someone, how much we covet it, how it goes wrong in the wrong hands, and how different it is when you have it versus when you're coveting mm. it. Amelia Clark plays Daenerys Targaryen, also known as the Mother of Dragons. She leads armies, raised dragons, and has killed a lot of people in her quest to take the Iron Throne. Extraordinary the sheer number of ways that people are killed. Oh, it's incredible. We really kill them good. Daenerys is pretty old school with her burning. But I guess the dragons also can eat people. Indeed, but they like to char them before they... (laughs) A burn is always involved in a dragon. (laughs) They like their meat cooked. It's a hard fall down these steps. Sirio says every hurt is a lesson. Actress Maisie Williams is Arya Stark, a teenager seeking revenge for the murder of her father. Well, how many people have you killed? Oh, gosh, I've lost count. I think in the book she has, like, the highest kill count. Williams was 12 when Game of Thrones started. She's now 22. This was her first acting job. I didn't even want to be an actor. I wanted to be a dancer, and then my second audition was for Game of Thrones, and then it all just... There are actors all over the world right now listening to that screaming. The things I do for love. George R.R. Martin is the novelist behind this murder and magic. In 1996, he published the first in his series of books called A Song of Ice and Fire. For years, Hollywood pursued him, trying to turn his books into movies. Their approach was inevitably to simplify. Well, okay, these books are too big. We have to cut it all down. I didn't want it simplified. So I said repeatedly the the sexiest word in Hollywood, no. That's the sexiest word in Hollywood? But no, I don't want to do it. Until David and Dan came along. 
That earlier part of the sequence was pure CG. I mean, David and Dan are David Benioff and Dan Weiss. At the time, they were young screenwriters and novelists with no television experience. But they loved the massive scale of Martin's story. I mean, no disrespect, you were relatively novice in, in this realm of yeah. television. It's yes. not disrespectful, it's a fact. I mean, we'd never produced anything. You never produced anything. What we thought we were facing was a real uphill battle of trying to explain to him why he should avoid all of these film offers and accept these two guys who've never made a television show before in their lives. And really, he just wanted to know if we knew the books. They knew the books cold and convinced Martin that if HBO signed on, they would make an epic cinematic television series that was true to his story. I knew that none of the conventional networks were ever going to put this on, not without taking out all the sex and 97% of the violence and making it a kiddie show that was on at 8 o'clock. I wasn't going to let that happen. HBO agreed, seeing it as a series about much more than just dragons and occasional magic. If you have a story that is about the human heart in conflict with itself, about these very basic human emotions, about love and, and ambition and greed for power, it doesn't matter if there's a dragon in it or if it takes place on an alien planet or if it takes place in, in Faulkner's Mississippi. Human stories are human stories. Human stories are human stories. The rest is, is just furniture. I drink and I know things. That focus on the humanity of the characters is what appealed to Peter Dinklage. He plays Tyrion Lannister, an outcast member of the ruling family of Westeros. Dinklage was the first actor to sign on, despite reservations about the fantasy genre. Dwarves in this genre always have pointy shoes and, and big beards, and they're relegated to uh, either comic relief or angry warriors without romance and human characteristics, really. And that just doesn't attract me as an actor. Um, but this guy, Tyrion Lannister, has all of that and then some. Dinklage recommended Lena Headey to play his sister, the cunning and ruthless Cersei Lannister. I love my brother. By the way, she also happens to be in an incestuous relationship with her other brother, Jamie, played by Nikolai Koster-Walda. I mean, I read the script and, I, and then I was like, who, what? I couldn't remember half the characters. And it is confusing. They had yeah. weird names, all of them, then you don't remember the names. I felt like that in the beginning, too. I was like, who's going to watch What's incestuous sweet? twins, dragons? Like, you know what I mean? Part of you thinks, I, I don't know. And then it shattered all of that. Game of Thrones was shot in ten different countries. <laughs> at dozens of locations, many in remote and desolate places. Hundreds of crew members worked behind the scenes, and in all, more than 12,000 extras were used. Attention to detail was critical. Major battle scenes sometimes took weeks to shoot and had to be carefully choreographed. And then there are the dragons challenge was making them as lifelike as possible, especially when actress Amelia Clark was supposed to be riding on them. Those scenes start as cartoon-like animation in a process called pre-visualization. Amelia Clark was then filmed riding what in early episodes was a pretty low-tech contraption. You're riding on a hard green shell. Yeah, and then there was like a pole either end and it was essentially like the dudes on the railway who, eh, eh, eh. Right. and I'm there kind of trying to like, yes, badass. And everyone's like, no, look badass. You look like Harry Potter. You look like you're on a broomstick. And people are kind of looking around being like, 
And it looks kind of weird. <laughs> it doesn't look weird, however, when edited together with special effects. Some of the most important sets they actually built from the ground up, like Castle Black, which is in a quarry outside Belfast. Actor Kit Harrington, who plays one of the central characters, Jon Snow, showed us around. But it's so interesting I mean, that they built... Uh, I mean, you feel like this is an actual castle that's been here for hundreds of years. It's not some sort of CGI creation. That was always with Thrones what I felt was amazing, is there was a level of detail that went beyond what the audience see. Jon Snow was killed in Castle Black and then magically brought back to life. Other main characters weren't so lucky. Ned Stark, played by actor Sean Bean, appeared to be one of the most important characters in the beginning of the series. Then he got his head chopped off before the end of season one. I could not believe you killed off Ned Stark. I have this reputation of being exceptionally bloodthirsty. In person, you don't seem very bloodthirsty. Star Wars kills more people than I do. I mean, right in the opening of Star Wars, they unleashed the Death Star against the planet Alderaan. Right, but you don't and know who's it, living on Alderaan. Exactly. Really. That should mean something. So I try to make you feel the deaths. I don't necessarily have more than any of the people, but I try to make you feel them more. After Ned Stark was killed, all the actors realized their characters could be next. We get all, this, all the scripts in one package. All the scripts for that season in one Yeah, that always go to the end, the last page of the last script of, of episode 10, and go backwards. To see if you were alive? To see if I die. Yeah, you just wanted to go out in a heroic way, at least. You don't want to go out, like, off screen, like, hey, did you hear about Tyrion? Ah, <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> he died. You don't want to go out that way. The level of brutality in Game of Thrones has been controversial, particularly scenes of sexual violence and degrading treatment of women. Actors Gwendolyn Christie, Liam Cunningham, and John Bradley say there's a reason for showing it all. Many, you know, terrible things happen to some of the women on the show. This story is loosely based on the War of the Roses. And I would say, learn. Learn that this is what has happened in history, and this is not what needs to happen in the future. This is a grown-up show, written by grown-ups for grown-ups. Violence is disgusting. Yeah. We show kind of the reality of it. The unpleasant, ugly nature of what human beings are capable of doing to other human beings. Now that the final season is about to start, there are plans to shoot a prequel series. And HBO intends to turn Castle Black and other locations in Northern Ireland into tourist attractions. Props used in the show are still stored in a warehouse outside Belfast. Look, a dragon. Yeah. It's a baby dragon. It's one <laughs> I mean, of the baby dragons. Wow. For a fan of the series, it's like visiting a shrine. There are stacks of dummy dead bodies from battles, dragon head skulls, and one of Kit Harrington's most famous costumes, which weighs about 30 pounds. Oh, I'll from that hanger. <laughs> I can barely hold this. Thing. Yeah. Wow. Remember Ned Stark, oh who lost his head in season one? We found it. We <laughs> got Ned's head. That's Ned's head? That's Ned's head. Oh, my God. Perhaps the most iconic characters of all in Game of Thrones are White Walkers, supernatural villains who control an army of zombie-like followers called Whites. Much of their look was created at this studio in Kent, England, by Barry Gower and his team. People say I look like a White Walker all the time. <laughs> I, get the, I get made fun of all the time. Gower agreed to show us just how complex the makeup for White Walkers is. You're comfortable enough there, yeah? Mm -hmm. 
Separate pieces of silicone are painstakingly applied with glue. Then makeup and paint fills in the details. The whole process takes about four hours. The transformation is startling. I keep forgetting that I am dressed like a White Walker. You would think you would feel this, but it actually, after a while, it just kind of feels like your regular skin. I think the temperature of the piece is warm up to your um, body temperature, mm -hmm. and I think it's quite easy to forget that you're wearing something. It is like a second skin. Despite all the meticulous attention to detail and careful planning, about halfway through the series, the Thrones executive producers Dan Weiss and David Benioff realized they had a problem. The TV show was catching up to the end of George R. R. Martin's books. Martin had promised two more novels to end the story, but he'd missed all his deadlines. He told the producers how he thought his books would end, but he didn't have all the details. So for the final seasons, Weiss and Benioff, who produced the TV series from the beginning, were on their own to decide how the game ends. What is the feeling as a writer who's drained up all these characters, all of a sudden to see it taken in a direction that is not directly of your making? Dave and Dan have done the most popular TV show in the world. I gave my baby out for adoption, and, and uh, she's not my baby anymore, but the books are still my baby. At the end of last season, Jon Snow and the Mother of Dragons united with some of the leading families in Westeros to try to stop the advancing army of the dead. But can humans put aside their differences to save themselves? Or will greed and distrust be the end of the Seven Kingdoms? I warned you. Northerners don't watch trust outsiders. We can't tell you how it all ends, but this is how the final season begins. The NBA playoffs tipped off this weekend, and the Golden State Warriors are trying to pull off what no team has accomplished in more than a half century. Not the Michael Jordan Bulls, not the Magic Johnson Lakers, not the Larry Bird Celtics. The Warriors are attempting to make their fifth straight trip to the NBA Finals and win their third straight title. Golden State thrives with an extravagant collection of talent. You'll hear from most of the star-studded lineup in a moment. But the overriding question in basketball right now Will the best team in a generation be able to triumph over not just the opposition, but over human nature, forces like ego, money, and fatigue? We recently spent a week with the Warriors in this, their last season in Oakland. One observation among many, when you're the hottest act in sports, the show starts early. 90 minutes to tip off at Oracle Arena, home of the Warriors. Stephen Curry emerges for his warm-up. No matter the night, no matter the opponent, fans show up early to watch this. Curry launches dozens of shots from every conceivable spot on the floor. Once he gets loose, he keeps it loose. And for his final trick, the mother of all Hail Marys. Halfway to the locker room, he drains it. Of course he does. The greatest shooter in the history of the NBA, Curry is only Exhibit A in the Warriors' embarrassment of riches. Here's Kevin Durant, MVP of the finals two years running. 
Meet Clay Thompson. For NBA history, whose 14 three-pointers in a game earlier this season broke the NBA record. But wait, there's more. That's Draymond Green, among the best defenders in the league. And with authority, it's DeMarcus Boogie Cousins. This roster is enough to make a coach relax. Steve Kerr, who came on five years ago, admits he takes a hands-off approach with this team, especially with Curry. What are you telling him to do? I don't tell him anything. You don't tell Steph Curry anything? No. That's the trust you have in him? Yeah, I had to learn uh, my, my first year coaching. It's probably midway through that first season. We're playing the Clippers. So Steph goes into this, like, Curly Neal impersonation, Harlem Globetrotters, around the back. I'm like, like this. Don't dribble through traffic. Move the ball up. And, of course, swish. And I walk back to the bench and, good shot, Steph. Way to go. Way to go. <laughs> But that was actually a key moment. The important thing for me to realize was uh, who Steph was, who Clay is. Who are they? They're gunslingers. Curry sets, fires, puts it up. Bang! Steph Curry! Kerr knows greatness when he sees it. He was an important role player on the Michael Jordan Bulls teams in the late 90s. He told us the vibe at Golden State feels similar to a point. I sat and watched Michael Jordan every night uh, in Chicago. Something special was happening. The difference is it could happen from Steph, Kevin, Clay. It could happen from any one of those guys on a given night. We stuck around one day after practice to meet those guys. I'm good, dude. Along with veterans Andre Iguodala, who was finishing his Wheaties. Hey, John. And stalwart Sean Livingston. It was a rare five-on-one interview, with the players showing some signs of mid-season fatigue. Let's go, Steph. If I told you Steph would be the last one, would you have predicted that? Mm. They mm. weren't willing to confirm or deny that Curry is always late. Oh, damn, he's going to put an unarmored shirt. That's Not crazy. until a few questions later when he gave himself up. Most likely to keep the bus waiting. This guy right here. This guy? Yeah, Madonna after right. the game. Who got the I most fines, that. though? I own that. Who got the most fines? Great question. Yeah. Who got the most fines? For being late. We do have a set time, though, after games. We usually have a time on the board when we're supposed to be on the bus. But a couple guys just don't even worry about that. They just come whenever they want. <laughs> Lateness notwithstanding, the Warriors' style of play recalls a symphony, emphasizing collective over the individual. There's so much talent on this team that you guys sometimes have to sacrifice ego. Have you ever wonder what it would be like to just put all your talents on display? I think we do that. We are now. We do that you feel like you do that. You feel like you do that right now. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you guys are sacrificing? Maybe minutes. Oh, yeah, in terms of, like, obviously everybody, if they really wanted to, let's say we play 48 minutes a night, shoot 40 shots. But, like, at the end of the day, that gets old. When you're out there on the podium with the trophy, you're running around hugging everybody because you know, like, what y'all been through together. So that's the fun part. Beyond the champagne-soaked locker rooms and championship parades, they've also managed to transform the sport. The Warriors shoot from long range more often than they go to the rim, making them near impossible to defend. It's changed the the geometry of the game, and you're seeing it league-wide now. Guys are shooting three-pointers from all over the place. Three-pointers, not a gimmick anymore. It's not a gimmick. It's it's kind of a staple. That staple requires constant upkeep. 
Once practice ended, we watched as Durant got in his extra work. His intensity is mesmerizing. He's so dialed in, it's like he's in the zone. It's like a zen state. For decades, there was no zen to the Warriors. The only constant in their 82-game seasons, losing. They once went 12 straight years without reaching the playoffs. Does that make it sweeter that you guys didn't start out at this champion caliber team? Trust me, I would have loved to win my rookie year, too. It wasn't fun winning 23 games, but uh, even last year winning 58 games, people thought that was a down year for us, and we won 58 games. I mean, that would be an all-time high for so many teams. Even like my 10 years being here, I feel like I've played for three different teams. Ah, what like are the teams? The team that sucked to the team trying to figure it out and to the established team that we got now where we're very confident in who we are, what we all bring to the table. I like this one. <laughs> but after five long seasons and five short summers, this one is beginning to show signs of wear and tear. This is Golden State's worst home loss ever in the Steve Kerr era. We've been playing, you know, 90, 100 games a season and the grind of that, not having off season. I also know that teams play their best basketball versus Everyone's bringing their A game when the Warriors come to town. It's supposed to be that way, especially when you set the standard in the whole league, you know. Everybody wants to beat that every night. All right, guys, I'm backing up. Backing up. Keeping this team going is an expensive proposition. The combined salaries of Curry, Durant, and Thompson alone are expected to top $100 million next season. The Warriors already pay tens of millions in tax to the league for exceeding the NBA salary cap. More talent also means more ego and expectation, and it's all complicated by free agency. There's been relentless speculation about Durant in particular leaving Golden State after this season. It's produced an unmistakable tension. Y'all come here every day, ask me about free agency, ask my teammates, my coaches, you rile up the fans about it. Uh, let us play basketball. It's inevitable there's going to be some friction sometimes. How do you guys handle conflict? Looking at me? We were looking at him. You said peace is a big word for you these days. What do you mean by that? Did you say that? I don't remember saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I thought about it. It's fallen largely to Kerr, who had never coached before the Warriors, to foster the team's culture. He told us the bulk of his work is done outside of game time. You know, drawing up the plays is um, maybe 20% of it. What's 80? Oh, man, 80 is being a psychologist. Steve Kerr's strategy for dealing with the drama, something he calls the fun factor. He's put a premium on joy over this championship run. This is a coach who will cancel the occasional practice in favor of bonding time at the bowling alley. What's the fun factor this season? The fun factor is... Uh, so it's like your campaign promise. It before, is. Uh, it is. Have you met it? Yes, but it's harder than ever. You do something with the same group of people over and over again. Maybe you get on each other's nerves a little more often. If anyone understands the burdens that come with winning, with eight NBA titles to his name, it's Kerr. He has a knack for looking after his backups as well as the starters. We relate to those guys that... Yeah. The end of the bench, not just the stars that are I making I don't really relate teams. to the stars at all. My favorite nights are when our starters play really well and our bench gets to play like the whole quarter, the whole fourth quarter. And during that fourth quarter, our starters are jumping for joy. That's the ultimate for you. That's the ultimate. And this top-to-bottom spirit seeps all the way into the team's laundry room. 
We made the rounds after a game one night with Eric Housen, director of team operations, who has been with the Warriors since the 1980s. Among his duties, keeping track of all those shoes. He does everything for our team. Many championship teams give their employees rings. The Warriors didn't just give Housen a ring. They surprised him with one at center court during the ceremony. Oh, man, my heart sank, and I was like, really? You know, me? What did that mean to you? The time and effort I put into it that they recognize that. Um, you still get emotional talking about this, don't you? It was just an incredible feeling. Next season, the Warriors will pack it all up and move across the bay to downtown San Francisco. The new arena is 10 miles, but a world away from Oakland. Team President Rick Welts gave us a tour of the model courtside suites, which come flush with a butler and private wine storage. What's the price point on this? If you have to ask, you can't afford it. (laughs) Most fans can't afford it at $2 million per suite each season. The Warriors may have sold out every game at Oracle, but many of the faithful won't be able to follow their team to San Francisco. The Warriors mean so much to us. Tyree Kayshawn lives in Oakland and walks 45 minutes to every game at Oracle. There it is. Home of the Warriors for the last 47 years. What's the vibe in Oakland about this move? How are people feeling about that? They're not feeling too good, man, because it's hard when the team you've been holding down for so long, even when it was bad, is kind of leaving you. It's tough, you know? Roof's on and the floor's on. The Warriors still have the NBA's longest season ticket waiting list. We were at center court of the new arena the day after the concrete was poured. Have we told your owners they paid three times as much for this building as they paid to buy the team ten years ago? I prefer you didn't describe it to them exactly that way. So, of course, we couldn't resist. Joe Lakeup, a venture capitalist, and Peter Goober, a Hollywood producer, bought the team in 2010 for what was then the highest price ever for an NBA franchise. The Warriors are now worth at least seven times that. So the good news is you paid $450 million for a franchise now valued at $3 billion. The bad news is you're going to spend over a billion on a new arena. Privately financed. You guys paid for that. Everything. Every dollar. There's not one dollar of public money. And it makes him very nervous. He calls me all the time. I said, don't worry, we're going to get through it. I worry. Every minute. He's the warrior. Is that right? You're the, you're the warrior of the two? He's a warrior. He's warrior. I'm a warrior. I'm the warrior. He's the warrior. The Golden State Warrior. Like Golden that. State Warriors. <laughs> but we notice the laughter stops abruptly when you call this team the defending champions. You guys enter the playoffs, and best you can do is defend. I think that's a bad perspective. Bad perspective. How, how would you, you reframe it better? Not, like, you have to shift it. You got to, like, attack it. On. You got to go after it. You can't just sit and, like, I'm protecting something. We're not cocky to walk in here and say our trophy is ours. We got to defend you from it. No, we're just going to go get it. By June, this team may get its three-peat and cement its dynasty. Or the joyride may end. Either way, let the owners do the Golden State worry. The coach is happy to savor the moment. It's our last year at Oracle. Our last year in Oakland, um, and this city has been really special to us and uh, to the Warriors for the last four decades or so. I know of a hell of a goodbye gift. Yeah, so do I. So do I. So that's, that's the goal. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.